Jesus. Do you know Him today? If you don't, I pray that as we consider His Word together that you would come to know Him or that when we're done, that I'd have the chance to talk with you and tell you how you can know Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. It's provided there in the bulletin for you. Uh, I'll be honest, we're not going to be in this text very long at all today. But this is the text that brings us to the topic of our consideration. So we want to We want to start here in a moment, and then we'll be looking at some other passages as well. I am grateful to Kevin King of Paramount Church for filling in for me last week. I don't know which one of you told him something about 30 minutes, but anyway, if you you were here, you know what I'm talking about. If you weren't, don't worry about it. In John 18... We have the, the scene of Jesus' trial, preparation, just before he is to be crucified. And we read the following. So Pilate, Pilate being the Roman governor of Judea, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate responded with that classic question. What is truth? What is truth? What is truth? Well, we see here that Jesus said that He came to bear witness to the truth. The truth is something that we can know. It's something that we can tell. It's something that we can believe. But Jesus says more about the truth than that truth is something merely to know or to communicate. He talks about people being of the truth. Previously, Jesus had said, you will know the truth. There it is again. The truth is something to be known. But He says more, doesn't He? The truth will set you free. The truth is not only something to be known, but it is something that has impact, that has effect. But he goes on just a little later. He says to the Jewish leaders, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth 
The truth is something to know. The truth is something that has effect. The truth is something in which we can stand. More than this, doesn't Jesus Himself say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is not merely something to be known. Uh, There are true facts, right? Facts are true. They correspond to reality. But the truth is not limited to that. The truth is identified. It is associated with Jesus. The truth is something in which we can stand. The enemies of God do not stand in the truth. Moreover, truth is something that we can do. We often don't think about truth in this way, but this is how the Bible speaks of the truth. John 3.21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth or do not do the truth. The truth is something we can believe, but it is also something, friends, that we do and we live in and we stand in. And this is at the heart of my concern as we have walked through the book of Philippians and now come to Philippians chapter 4, and we are taking this pause to consider the issue of fear, worry, anxiety that we've talked about for two weeks prior. You can go back and listen to those on the website if you've not been with us and and you're curious. But my concern is this, that we believe the Scriptures. We say that we want to be people of the book. And we affirm that we believe what the Bible teaches. And friends, this is vitally important. But it is not enough. The Christian life is not summed up and does not end in merely affirming the truth. As I have said before, and must say again here, we are not saved by our belief about the doctrine of justification, what the Bible teaches about how we can be made right with God. We are not saved by affirming that doctrine. We are saved by trusting in Jesus. And what does He do when we trust in Him? He makes us right with God by what He has done. But, as we walk the Christian life, our Christian life then does not continue on merely in the sum of the affirmations that we say are true. But instead, we are called as followers of Christ to do the truth to stand in the truth, to apply the truth to our lives, to know the truth so that we might experience true, more, and increasing freedom in Christ. 
Well, what does this have to do with our consideration of fear? This is just one example, but one of the the burdens of my heart as a pastor for years now has been that we continue to make progress, not just in knowing the truth, but in doing the truth, in responding to the truth, in seeing the truth applied to our lives. And this matter of our common experience of worry, anxiety, fear is one way in which I believe God would have us and wants us not only to know the truth about our experience of fear in this fallen world, but to stand in the truth and to do the truth according to what He says. The Bible is not silent on this issue. And so as we think about that admonition, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. We want to pause here and continue to understand what the Bible teaches about this common experience that we all face and to grow together in taking one step forward in doing the truth, not merely affirming it, but standing in it together. Philippians chapter 4, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So as we continue our consideration of this appeal and how it is that we can take to heart and put into practice Paul's admonition, his encouragement to not be anxious, but to pursue the peace of God in prayer. Today, we want to take our next step in this journey. If you have, I made mention of this a moment ago, if you have your bulletin, pull out that purple insert. There's a purple insert in there, and on one side at the top it says examining worry, anxiety, and fear. On the other side it says understanding worry, anxiety, and fear. You think, Pastor Greg, are you just playing word games with us? Examining, understanding, is there really that big of a difference between the two? Well, on the one side, understanding worry, anxiety, and fear, you see nine observations. And these are the nine observations that I walked through over the past two weeks. So you have these just by way of reminder and reference. But on the other side, you have examining worry, anxiety, and fear, which is what we're going to begin considering this morning. And if, you, if you're wondering, how do these two go together? It's kind of like this. How do predators 
work in the wild. Predators don't just go after prey. What do they do? They examine. They observe. This past week or a week ago or or something like that, time runs together. There was a hawk in a tree outside of our house. He sat there for over an hour just observing. I don't think he was just relaxing. He was looking for his prey, right? And what was he going to do after his observations were complete? He was going to attack the prey because it was time for lunch. Well, you can think about what we've been doing and thinking about fear in these previous observations as kind of observing, walking around, trying to get an understanding from a bit of a distance about fear. But today, what we begin to do is to go at fear directly. Like predators, we want to attack this issue so that we can respond to it in keeping with the scriptures. So I think you'll want to have this insert in front of you because we're going to be walking through that. If you're joining us on the live stream, we have some slides there. And then that reminds me, we also have, if I can get this going, there we go. We also have the the information up here on the screens if you prefer to follow along that way. But notice first, a working definition of fear. I think if we think about what fear is and what the Bible has to say about it, we can, we can pretty well describe fear in this way. Fear is the conscious or unconscious response of distress we experience when we perceive a threat to something we value. Now, if your eyes have already glazed over Okay, hang with me because we're going to step our way through this. But I should also remind you of of one thing. This is for all of us, but especially if you've not been with us before. The way we are going at this issue is really unusual for a Sunday morning sermon because typically what I do is I take a portion of Scripture and we consider it in a reasonable level of detail. At least I think it's reasonable. Some of you may not. And then we try to apply that to life. Well, what we've been doing for a few months now is we've been working our way through the book of Philippians, little sections at a time. And now we've come to that passage that I've just read, and we're taking a pause and stepping back and doing a bit of a topical examination of this issue of fear. So here is one way that I think we can define it. Now, to help us see this, to help us see that I think this is a helpful way to describe fear. I want us to recall two biblical stories. If you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you, grab one of those Bibles out of the pew rack. Open to the very first book. It's the book of Genesis. And you'll see, as you open up that, you'll see some big numbers 
and you'll see some small numbers in the text. The big numbers are the chapters. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, so just find your way to chapter 32 of that first book of Genesis. Now, when we pick up here with Genesis 32, if we had been reading along, we know the story is the story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and their contentious relationship. They have been apart for 20 years as Jacob the younger fled for his life because he was a conniver and his older brother sought to kill him. Well, Jacob's been away for 20 years. A lot has happened, but now he is on his way back home. And here we pick up in Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps." Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. Story one. Now, story two. Turn over a ways to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 17. If you get to the book of Psalms, you've gone just a bit too far. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. As we come into 1 Samuel 17, King Saul is the king of Israel, but in the prior chapter, David, unbeknownst to Saul, has been anointed king, and he will eventually become king. But we pick up in 1 Samuel 17 beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain 
on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had, a, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have, I, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now jump down to verse 21. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, in these two stories, familiar to many of us, but also worth pausing and reading again, what is the common thread? We have individuals in both accounts who are dismayed. They are distressed. And so, as we think through our definition, for some reason this is not working. Can you advance to the next slide? There we go. So, as we examine the definition, fear is the experience of some sort of distress. Jacob, as he prepares to go back and he hears that Esau is coming, what, what, how does he respond? His soul is distressed. He is worried upon hearing of the coming of his brother. The Israelites... Goliath there in front of them. What do they experience as they hear him, as they see this giant? Well, they're distressed. They're greatly dismayed. What are we going to do about this? And this is what happens to us, right? When anything would come against us or threaten us, we experience a sense of distress. Now, this distress can be instantaneous. Somebody jumps around the corner. One of my children tried to cause me distress the other day as I was coming up from the basement, jumping around the corner. They didn't get me that time. But sometimes the, the distress that we 
experience the fear that we face can be instantaneous. But it's not always that way, is it? Sometimes it's prolonged. It's protracted. And over an extended period of time, we just have these churnings of distress that sometimes are more calm, but sometimes are more intense, even to the point of feeling as if they are raging. And we, we know that this is what fear is, but we can also see it helpfully just in the contrast, in the opposite. When we're not afraid, we're calm. We have a measure of peace. We are not distressed. Now, not only can this distress be instantaneous or protracted, but friends, it can also be something that we are acutely aware of and we know that we're, we're concerned about something, but we can also be in fear and not even realize it. There's something that's bothering us, that's concerning us, but actually we're not even aware in our circumstances and how we're responding that we're being driven by our concern. But it is at some level the experience of distress. Now, in that distress that we experience, when we experience fear, two primary elements have our attention. Something we value and one or more perceived threats to what we value. Now, what do we mean here? So when we experience that distress, there are these two things capturing our attention. One thing is something that we value. Think about Jacob. As Esau is coming, what does Jacob value? He values his oxen. He values his camels. He values his wives. He values his children. He values his entire household. And he is concerned for them. Think about the Israelites. As they see Goliath, what do they value? What are they concerned about? Well, they're also concerned about their lives. They want to keep on living. But they also value their nation. And they don't want to be subjugated to the Philistines. And so they, they value their separation and they want to continue to be their own nation. But in these things that both groups value, these things are threatened, aren't they? Go back to the story of Jacob. What is the threat? Well, it's the threat of Esau. Esau might come and try and take or destroy what is Jacob's. In the instance of the Israelites with Goliath, what is the threat? Well, it's this giant. It's Goliath. And so, we have in these two scenes, people in distress because something that they value is being threatened. And friends, it's the same with us. 
when we experience anxiety, something that we want is being threatened, or at least we perceive, we think that it's being threatened. For example, what kinds of things do you value? What kinds of things do you treasure? Well, like Jacob and the Israelites, we value our health and safety. We value the health and safety of others, dear friends and family members. We value material possessions. We value a certain way of life, certain creature comforts that we have become accustomed to. Perhaps we value status in the workplace or in society. We value our accomplishments. We value our reputation and what others think about us. None of these things in and of themselves are necessarily wrong things. And we all, in one way or another, at different times and at different levels, value these things and others. But what happens commonly when something seeks to threaten one of these things? You go to the doctor and he says the test results are in and it's not good news. It is not uncommon for the result to be, for the response to be, a measure of distress of soul. Concerned for, what is this going to mean? If your hope is in Christ, Perhaps your experience is, you know, the report is bad, and I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of death, but I am concerned about the process of dying and what that's going to be like. Or, I'm afraid for what life is going to be like for my children when I'm gone. Or, I'm afraid, I'm concerned about what others will think of me if I say this, or if I continue on this course of commitment of action. I value what they think about me and my reputation among them. And so we have things that we value and when threats come to those things or potential threats, they could think negatively of me. I could lose my position. We begin to experience fear. But notice that these threats to what we value. Sometimes they're right there in front of us. That was the case with the Israelites. What they feared was standing right there in front of them. Goliath. 
But sometimes what we fear is not right there in front of us. It's something we hear about or it's something that we imagine and we anticipate is a threat to us. This was the case for Jacob. Esau wasn't right there in front of him. But he anticipated, he imagined that because of their past relationship, there was a clear and present danger that was about to be on him. Sometimes the threats that we perceive attacking the things that we value, resulting in fear, sometimes they're right there in front of us. But sometimes they're not. They're things that we imagine or perceive will be a threat. Now, when we think about fear, focusing, having to do with these two things, what we treasure and a threat to those treasures, typically we're focusing on one or the other. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose this relationship. Or we're thinking about the danger, the source of danger. I'm concerned about this thunderstorm that is about to roll through. I'm concerned about this medical diagnosis that I have received. But when we are afraid, both what we treasure and one or more things that are attacking or threatening to attack that thing that we desire, both are present. Next, our response of distress is influenced by our evaluation of what we value and the threats. It's not just the thing that we value, and it's not just the threat that result in fear, but it's how we see these things. It's how we think about them. Think about Jacob. What value did he place on his herds, on his family? He placed a very high value on keeping them, on retaining them. And when we are afraid that something is going to happen to us, something is going to happen to someone that we love, that we're going to lose something that we would really like to have or hold on to, our experience of fear is directly related to how much we want that thing. How much we want it to continue. How much we don't want it to be harmed. How much we want it to be protected. How much we think we need that thing, whatever it is, in order to have a happy, pleasant life. Our response of distress is influenced by how much we want whatever it is that we want. But we also experience distress in keeping with how dangerous or how real we perceive the threat to be. Here's what I mean. 
parents. Your children are playing out in the front yard. And the ball rolls out in the street. If the four-year-old neighbor is coming down the street on his scooter that he's motorizing, you're like, okay, go get the ball, no worries. But if your neighbor's SUV is coming down the street 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, the threat to your child's life is real, and how do you respond? Stop! Wait! You're concerned for your child because the threat is real, and you want your child to live. And you should want your child to live. Right? So, if the threat isn't a danger, then there's no fear. Moreover, if it's something that we don't want, that we don't care about, even though the danger is real, there's really no fear. Think about that same scenario, a neighbor barreling down 15 miles an hour over the speed limit through your neighborhood, and what's in the middle of the road, a bag from Chick-fil-A that happened to fall out of your car, you could care less about that bag. You're not going to say, wait, wait, stop, I've got to save the bag. You don't care about the bag. Let the SUV barrel down the road, and then you'll go get the bag to be a good citizen and put it in the trash can, right? But because you don't value that piece of trash, you're not afraid. You might be afraid for something else as that SUV drives crazily down the, the road. But my point here is our response of fear, our response of distress, is influenced by our evaluation. Do we value this thing? And is the threat a real threat? Now, in our consideration of both the value of the object and the threats, we frequently imagine three things. We frequently imagine three things. Can you advance the slide for me, Vince? Thank you. First, we frequently imagine the consequence if the threat attacks what we value. Think again about getting that diagnosis and being unsettled by it. Or a family member receives a bad diagnosis and you are unsettled by it. Or you don't get that promotion or you're afraid you might not get that promotion that you so desperately want, but there's someone else that seems to have a better shot at it. When we are afraid, we imagine what life will be like if that threat is successful. How it's going to hurt and I'm going to be sorrowful. And I'm going to miss not having 
my spouse next to me anymore, and I don't want that to happen. I'm concerned. I think that it's just going to be too emotionally difficult to walk down the road of all of the physical changes that may come my way. When we are afraid, we imagine the consequences if the threat affects what we value. Isn't this what happened with Jacob? Did you hear his thought about the consequence? What did he do? He separated his valuable possessions into two camps because he was thinking about the consequence and he was preparing for action. If he takes the first group, well, at least I'll still have the second. The Israelites, when they were confronted with Goliath, they were thinking about the consequence. If he defeats us, Whoever he kills is dead, and the rest of us are servants of the Philistines. They are imagining the consequences. And so, we consider ways to limit the threat. Are there medications that I can take? Is there an insurance policy that I need to take out to protect this object of value or to ensure that I recoup my losses if something happens to it. This is what Jacob did, right? He sought ways to protect his value by separating the camps. We also, we seek ways to I think I've gotten sideways here. I apologize. We seek ways to limit the threat and to protect what we value. Limit the threat and protect what we value. We see these in the actions of both stories, don't we? Jacob limited the threat of Esau by separating the camp so he could, his impact would be limited. The Israelites protected what they valued. How? By just not going to battle. By staying behind. We, in our fear, imagine, consider both the object that we value and the threats. And what do we do? And this is where we're going to stop for today. What do we do when we perceive a threat? What do we do when we feel like something that we want to hold on to or something that we want to have may be taken away from us or may be hindered? We respond. We respond in some way. Our experience of fear, our feelings of distress, And these thoughts that we imagine, what will life be like? How can I stop the threat? How can I protect what I treasure? Our experience of fear is often expressed in words, in actions, and in other emotions. We see this with Jacob, 
and we see it with the Israelites. They said things and they did things in response to the threats to what they valued. Separate the people into camps. Provide the instructions. Not go into battle. Be sure others know about the threat that is before us. And friends, we do the same thing. When we are afraid, we respond in our words. We respond by acting. We respond in those thoughts that can continue to rumble around. We can also respond in sadness. We can respond in anger when something that we want is being threatened. And so, if this is what fear is, the conscious or unconscious response of distress we experience when we perceive a threat to something that we value. If this is what fear is, friends, I want to tell you, the Bible has much to say to help us perceive threats appropriately. To help us value the things of this world rightly. The Bible provides us help and guidance in responding to circumstances that evoke responses of fear in ways that honor God, in ways that reorient us to trusting Him, wanting what He wants for us, treasuring what He treasures, and perceiving the threats to us and those we love in light of who He is and the promises that He has made. And so next week, we continue down this road to understand how is it that God helps us when we are distressed in the times when something that we want, we perceive is being attacked. But this morning, I cannot just end there. But friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, there is a threat greater than anything that you can imagine in this life. There is a real threat to your eternity that you cannot escape apart from Christ. My plea to you this morning, I hope you've gleaned something from what we've considered about what our experience of fear in this fallen world is. But I pray that even more than that,
that you would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, the only one who can spare you from the greatest threat that you will ever know and totally upend your system of values so that you will come to know and to see that the Lord is good and that He is to be treasured above all things. If you don't know Christ, let's talk before you leave today. Contact the church this week and let's sit down and talk together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to You again this morning, God, this... This series, little mini-series as we've been thinking about how to understand fear and how to bring Your Word to bear on our common experience of distresses big and small in this life. Father, I pray that You would help us grow in seeing where it is that our treasures are misordered, where it is that our desires are, even for good things, are too big. Help us to see, Father, that Your desire for us is that we would become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see, Father, that You are pleased even to use the things that threaten us and those we love to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to grow in setting aside anxiety and looking to You, trusting You, growing in love and affection, and treasuring you above all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.